I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Christopher Roman. In for Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because someone has to. Welcome to episode 420, make of that what you will, of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics, greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, Chris, to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. So if you are unfamiliar with Chris's work, which you may be if you're coming in primarily from a fan and comic screening perspective, Chris is a professor at Kent State University, and he's a comic scholar, and he recently published a book called Queering Wolverine in Comics and Fan Fiction, a fastball special, which in addition to having a really, really excellent subtitle, is extremely precisely my jam in terms of just being being just at the really a really, really toothy in- intersection of, of queer theory and comics reading and, and fan studies and, and Wolverine being extremely queer. I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So is there anything that I, I missed in the intro? I, I feel like I'm going through this awfully fast. No, that's perfect. That's a perfect intro. <laughs> All right. So because we, we tend to, to look at comics from primarily a critical and a narrative angle, and you're really looking at your when when you're talking about queering Wolverine in this in this book, you're talking about queering him in in an academic context, and specifically the context of of queer literary theory. Um, and I was wondering if you can you can give like a really really Cliff's Notes one hundred and one intro to sort of what that means for listeners who may not be familiar. Sure. So like queer theory comes out of say gay and lesbian studies from the seventies and eighties, right? And looking at non normative sexualities and gender identities. And it, it's hard to put queer theory in a box um, because it tends to be very anti-authoritarian, right? And so there's a, there's a lot, even, you know, even though there's a lot of queer theory in an academic setting, there isn't like a school of queer theory. We could call this phases of queer theory, but generally speaking, what queer theory tries to do is look at the ways in which sexualities are uh, represented in literature, society, like on all kinds of different levels, right? So it's looking at maybe the ways in which there are queer subtexts to uh, literature that hasn't previously been discussed. When you say queer subtexts, I, I want to kind of hook onto that for a second. Sure. Because one of one of the things that strikes me about the book when you discuss it is that when we talk about queer subtexts, narratively, a lot of what we talk about is is this could be implying that this character is queer or that these characters are in a relationship. And you're expanding that reading into a lot of thematic and allegorical points into aspects of Wolverine as a person that are also coded as aspects of queerness as a larger category. Right. Yes. So, so my book really deals with the way in which artists and writers have represented his body, his relationships. And then the last chapter looks at fan fiction and looks at how, you know, fan fiction writers have looked at or used the comics to unpack or make more explicit the queerness that they feel like they've read in, in that character. Uh, so I'm looking at Wolverine sort of in three different contexts. And I think, you know, once you start to sort of press on his queerness, like it, it all sort of erupts um, and, and there's all kinds of rich readings of that character where before he tends to be read as sort of this very heteronormative character, but there's a lot more going on there. Well, there's there's a long tradition of that. I feel like in in media and also in in real life of the the very sort of heteronormative peak masculinity figures and characters 
also being the most queer. This was the, 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 the tangential conversation to this. Um, someone was discussing that, the, you know, this is the exact way people misread Wolverine and the list could have been Cary Grant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So let's start where you start in the book. It's with Wolverine's body. And something you talk about a lot in here is specifically Wolverine's body as as and physicality as porous. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So one of the things that I was really intrigued by, and I think this is this is a queer reading of the body. So to sort of drag in some queer theory, like the body, I think normatively speaking, is like this very solid thing, and it's a very specific construction. That, you know, we we think of our bodies as just these very solid things, right? That that we contain, that are, it's very contained. How about that? However, when you look at the character of Wolverine, especially as you compare it to other comic book characters, his body is very open from the way in which he's created through the Weapon X program to the, even like his claws, right? It's, it, the way he even uses sort of his mutant or part of his mutant powers, right? These claws, he opens up his skin, right? So his body isn't contained in the, in the usual way, um, even when we think about his ability to heal, right? He's often open. Uh, so I feel like the this body is always on display, and it's not a body that is solid in, in, in any way. Like, when we think about superheroes, we often think of them as being these very, like, you know, muscle-bound, solid figures, and Wolverine's not like that. Like, I mean, he, you know, he's represented with a lot of muscles and all that kind of stuff, but oftentimes he's placed in these very vulnerable positions in which his body's open to all kinds of things. And so that's why one of the things that I, that I talk about in the book is that he, his power isn't, isn't uh, metaphorically phallic, right? So the phallus in you know, psychoanalysis, right? The phallus is, is not necessarily overlapping with the penis, right? But the phallus is the power structure. Anybody who's got like a power. A cosmic rod joke goes here. <laughs> and it's got, you know, and, and it's got, um, you know, all kinds of different manifestations, right? Symbolic manifestations. But Wolverine's not like that. He, his power is more, what I argue, is sort of anal. He's got lots of holes, and those holes continue to be represented throughout a lot of his literature. And so that, that, and that kind of slides into the stuff about his relationships, too. But I think that that's, that's the interesting thing about that character is that he is often represented in vulnerable places. His power is very, and his body's very open. The way, the way the adamantium is put into his body is very open. So it's like, he's not a closed body and he never has been. And so it, that really got me thinking about um, how to talk about him queerly, because it's, it's kind of different than other kinds of uh, superheroes that we see. Yeah, we think of superhero physicality as sort of defined by durability, or at least the illusion of durability. Right. And Wolverine isn't durable, he's regenerative. And that's a really critical distinction. And that seems like, honestly, like in, in those ways, his, his physicality seems like a very, very direct parallel to his, his sense of self and his identity and the ways in which he's, he's likewise been consistently historically vulnerable in terms of memory and in terms of, of right. identity. Right. And I think that's the other thing that's really interesting about this character is that he's always in process. Uh, he's never, you know, he's never... He's never fully a, like a being, but you know what I mean? And, and like, I hate to care. Like, I hate to compare him to like, like someone like Captain America, right? Like, I feel like Captain America, like he's very solid. Like his, like we kind of know, we kind of know him. Like it, it's not hard to kind of latch onto him or something. And I feel like that that's the interesting thing about Wolverine. He's like, 
despite his ubiquity in comics, like he's still very slippery because of, you know, like you mentioned, like the memory stuff, like there's still stuff that's, he hasn't been able to recover about himself. You know, he's, he's still figuring out things like, you know, for like how to be a parent, something I bring up at the end of the book. He's still like connecting himself with different kinds of kinship, kinship structures. Uh, so, I mean, he, he just is, is not like a, this, I think that's what makes him kind of intriguing is that he's, his identity is in, is always in process and we're always learning something new about him, which makes him kind of like, I think again, this sort of makes him kind of queer in that sort of superhero vein. It's funny, you mentioned that as being the case despite his ubiquity, and it's something that I think of as specifically being a byproduct of his ubiquity, mm. that he's, he's, he's being perpetually rewritten on a scale that most characters never really come close to. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. When I say his ubiquity, I think he's just on every team. Yes. <laughs> right? And that, that's led to some, like, oh, I know, I think that's what le- has led to a very specific reading of him. Like mm-hmm. he's the stand in mutant when you need like the, the muscle guy who's ultra violent. And I think that there, there's depending on, you know, who's writing him, there's more to it than that. There's more, there's more than, than that. And I think um, in his own title, like in, in, in the Wolverine, you know, especially something like Larry Hama, there's a lot more going on there that, uh, you know, allows for a more rich representation. I want to go back to porosity because something else that you talk about pretty extensively is is cyborg identity and and sort of cyborg and hybrid identities in context of physical queerness. Yeah, and and that's that that is a favorite subject of mine. So I'm going to make you talk about it. Okay, so one of the things that I was really interested in is that, and I think this goes back to the concept of process. That Wolverine is not just one thing. Uh, because uh, he's, I mean, he's a mutant, but also he's a cyborg uh, because he's been injected with this liquid metal. So there's a really interesting hybrid nature about him that I feel like he's always trying to negotiate, right? So, and I, I think that's another interesting thing about his character. Like, so he not only he might his mutant healing, his mutant power really is healing, right? Mm-hmm. So he and people have even used his blood to heal and that kind of thing. So like. He's got the healing, and then he's also got the destruction, right, of the of the metal, right, the cyborg part of him. Yeah, so he's in this perpetual state of decomposition and recomposition. Right, and so even in, um, you know, like in the death of Wolverine, right, the adamantium is killing him. Mm-hmm. I like, I really, I'm really interested in that tension between this destruction and and healing. Uh, what we call it reconstruction, right? The destruction, reconstruction. He's trying to always negotiate those two things, and so. I, I bring in Donna Haraway uh, to talk about the cyborg because, because there's sort of the one perspective on sort of cyborg culture in which the cyborg is dangerous and the machine's going to kill us. But her argument is basically that humans are already cyborgs in a lot of different ways. We wear contacts and hearing aids and pacemakers and things like that. So we are not just um, made up of flesh, but, you know, other other parts, right? And so how do we negotiate those things? And how do we rethink what we are as human beings when we're made up of all these different parts? And so I think that's an interesting reflection of humanity that Wolverine kind of encompasses is this sort of, I'm, you know, I've got all this metal in me. I've got this other, this mutant part of me too. And how do I negotiate those two 
to aspects of myself. And I think that that's another example of the ways in which he's always sort of in process of figuring himself out. He's not, he's not a stable character. And that's, and that's what makes him interesting. And, and I think, I mean, none of us are stable, right? We're always changing and, and, and functioning. So I think that that's something else that really draws me to that character. Yeah, it's funny. It this struck me when I was reading the book, and you, you discuss it briefly toward the end. But as you're talking about specifically Wolverine's physicality and, and relationship to his body, these strike me as extremely, extremely trans readings of the character. Oh, yes. And I and I, I will fully admit I did not do a full trans reading. And in fact, I invited other people, other scholars to do uh, a trans reading of Wolverine because it, trans studies is you know, comes out of queer theory, but is, is different than queer theory. So I'm looking at, you know, the ways in which he's non-normative and I'm looking at the ways in which he's creating kinship structures that are different than heteronormative kinship structures, like, you know, something like Fantastic Four, where I think a trans reading is its own, is, is actually its own uh, subject. So I, at the, in the conclusion of the book, I talk a little bit about uh, trans readings. And I think that there's a lot of, um, on social media, there's a lot of, headcanons that Wolverine is trans and they're fantastic readings. But I just kind of dip my toe in that. But that is like a subject for a whole uh, another book. So you mentioned just now kinship structures, which is, is the second sort of large section of the book. And then the thing that I kind of want to spend the bulk of this conversation on, mm-hmm. because it's fascinating and it's it's something that's both a really, really fundamental aspect of Wolverine's characterization and something that tends to be overlooked when people give the the you know elevator summary of the character. Yes. And you you look at a few a few sort of case studies in particular, but all of them have the commonality of of what you describe as queer kinship structures. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure, yeah. So in the queer community, um a lot of times the family stru- so if we've got the heteronorm right so this goes back to <laughs> I start over. Let me, so it goes back to some of the basic tenets of queer theory in that like we're looking at non-normative structures, right? So if the norm, quote-unquote norm, is the heterosexual family, right? A male, female, two kids, 2.5 kids. Then anything that kind of goes outside of that normative is is the non-normative. And so queer theory is interested in the ways in which people create non-normative kinship structures, right? So they call them kinship structures because it's not biologically based. Mm-hmm. So Wolverine has a lot of those kinship structures, yeah. He he develops them with a number of young mutants, and there's a you know there's a I, I list them a lot of them in the book, but my my main you know bulk of that chapter is about Kitty Pride and Quentin Quire and and Elsie Elsie I, I have three different uh, case studies in that in that chapter, but it's it's really interesting to think about other ways in which we form community mm-hmm. that there isn't just one way, and so you know what we might see represented on television and. And, you know, even in literature and, and some and in comics too, just that basic, you know, heteronormative family structure isn't, you know, always the answer. Right. There's all kinds of different structures that do not necessarily need to be based in biology. So, you know, if something is when we think about drag culture and we've got the ho- different houses, right? And we've got the mother and, and their children, right? That's a queer kinship structure polyamorous polycules, right? That's an alternate, uh, quote-unquote, non-normative kinship structure. So I'm interested, so exporting that from queer theory, I'm interested, I was interested in, like, how Wolverine shapes those kinds of kinship structures within the larger mutant community, which is often read as queer. The kinship structures that you discuss specifically 
are ones that, that I, your reading of appealed to me so much because they're ones that tend to be written, not, not necessarily written off, but, but inaccurately summarized as, as pseudo parental, mm -hmm, yeah. as, as Wolverine being a parent figure. And one of the things that I love that you really go into detail about, especially with regards to Kitty, is the way that they're not. They're a kind of relationship that we don't have an immediate heteronuclear family analogy for that and and it also that that doesn't doesn't fit into the hetero standard relationships that we see especially between older men and younger women right. in media right absolutely and i i feel like it's always a misreading of him like you know i've seen different you know comments and stuff about like sort of pervy he's wolverine's pervy right because he's always you know connected to younger women and things like that but to read these stories through a queer lens really, I think, unpacks them because it's he doesn't substitute himself in as a father figure at all. He becomes this this mentor and guide that is much more rich than you know, like a, a traditional father figure. Um, and that's what's really fast. Like you know, when you're doing these kind of queer subtext readings, like these things get unpacked, and, and that's a really awesome thing about Kitty Pryde and Wolverine that miniseries is that that arc is really fascinating and looking at the ways in which he refuses to substitute himself as another father figure. And there's that whole story is like rife with father figures, you know, Xavier and her own father and Ogan. And, and so it would be very easy. And I think that's what it would have made the series unsuccessful if he would have just placed himself in as another example of another father, right? Just taking care of her. And, you know, they're their little, you know, they're their little thing, right? He doesn't do that at all. He re he refuses that and cultivates her own sense of self. And so I think that's what's interesting about you know his his enactment of queer kinship is that he refuses to just be like you know a wolf, daddy Wolverine. You know, like he he really refuses that to be much more of this like kind of queer guide, saying like, okay, look, you belong to this mutant community. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to erase who you are. There's all kinds of different ways to be mutant slash queer. And so let me help you through that, right? And that that's what's really fascinating about that character. He's done it again and again and again. And I, and I would kind of argue that that's what's been kind of missing from recent Wolverine stuff. They're, like, he's really kind of missing a sort of the mentorship part of the self. It's not connected to uh, anyone strongly like that. A little bit of Quentin Quire, I think, but not as much as, as we saw before. And I think that that's really one of the another ways in which that you know Wolverine is is queer um, is that he's really developing these relationships. He's he's like a that's like the House of Wolverine, right? He's uh, he's helping these these young these young drag queens be better be better mutants. <laughs> okay, that's the episode title right there. <laughs> so the relationships that you talk about and the relationships that really are sort of tend to be the, the definitive ones for Wolverine aren't just specifically queer kinship relationships. They're, they're intergenerational um, mm -hmm. queer kinships. Yes. And they're intergenerational relationships of a sort that feels very reflective of intergenerational queer mm -hmm. friendship to me, mm -hmm. my experience. But I was wondering if you looked at it and if you see, if you can apply some of that lens to some of his, his more direct peer relationships as well, or whether, whether you see that reading in there. Mm -hmm. Like, who, do you, who are you thinking about? That's interesting. I'm I I don't actually have 
specific characters in mind on this. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, of his, his close relationships with people who are, it's, it's hard to characterize them as peers because technically pretty much all of Wolverine's relationships are intergenerational because he's you know, right. a hundred and so, change years old. Right, right. But, but the people who, who at least in terms of, of power structures are, are more his peers and, and less his students. Huh. That's a really good question. I'm trying to think team, like team books, the team books that aren't mutant books, like he's not written in the ways that like yeah. lend themselves to that. But that in, reading, in mutant you know? books, even, I mean, one, one yeah. of the relationships that I feel like is, is chronically underdeveloped and always really interesting on the page is, is his relationship to Emma Frost. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. And I'm thinking like, like, you know, his closest friendships, with, of course, Nightcrawler, mm-hmm. which we're going to get to later this episode. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I'd have to really think about that question. That's a really good one. Like my focus was so on the intergenerational stuff that like, how is he with his own peer group? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, you know, there's the tension always between him and Scott, but that, I feel like that's more leadership, like almost leadership styles, right? I mean, like Scott's yeah. very straight laced and Wolverine's the loose cannon. Honestly, I feel like half the time that's not even so much characterization as as what they need to each be emblematic of in a story for right. reader identification. Yes, absolutely. Right, right. But yeah, I'd have to think. That's a really good question. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I'm not totally sure. I'd have to look at how it's like you're asking me basically, how does Wolverine interact with adults? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not totally like, well, that was poorly. <laughs> Well, one of the things that that we see that I I remember specifically reading across Claremont's run of X-Men is Wolverine gradually learning, for instance, to accept care. Yes, yes. And to identify himself as part of a kinship structure rather than someone who's separate or or, separately aligned from it. Right. Um, And that's something that's that's a very, very slow burning, but very explicit evolution. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, now that you say that, I'm thinking of, like, sort of his relationship with Storm. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the one, I feel like, that gets him to, I, I, wanna, I don't want to say wise up, but, like, that's probably a nice pat phrase for it. Like, mm-hmm. she, he's difficult with her in ways that she calls him on. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, like, you're right, I'm, I'm being difficult for the sake of being difficult. And is is the person from whom he can actually hear it? Yes, absolutely. Like he respects her immensely, and she. It's like, and you know, the relationship's interesting too because I think they learn a lot from each other. So you brought up the Claremont run, so like you know, as they develop, they mutually respect each other more and more, and therefore he comes to you know open himself to her in ways that he may not with other with the other X Men. And I like that. I like that idea of like accepting care because that that you know, in my perspective, like he's the one giving care. Right. But uh, yeah, the way he's got to negotiate being part of you know mutant culture, the mutant community as well, and so he has to figure out how to be taken care of. Uh, I, I think I like that. That's, that's, that's another side of. Oh, there's, I feel like there's an article in there. How does how does Wolverine accept care? Well, and how does the acceptance of care or the acceptance of the nece- the the acceptance of solidarity and and supporting structures relate to the porosity that you just and vulnerability that you discovered earlier? Like, to what extent? Because you can you can you can say that, yeah, that's about re- its relationships with other people, but it's also about recognizing, like he's he's a character whose approach to the world 
is one that's focused on identifying himself as regenerative, uh, regenerative rather than vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think his his gradual entry into and really membership in the mute, the mutant community and the X Men specifically involves some degree of acknowledgement that vulnerability is is a, an aspect of his identity. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I, I think too. yeah, that's, that's I think that's key to like you know to to being open to helping other you know the younger mutants right he's yeah. got to be vulnerable yeah so it would be interesting to go back and look at where he allows himself to be vulnerable with like you said with his peer group right not mm-hmm. not the younger generation because i feel like yeah there's there's that missing piece right that he's got to find that vulnerability somewhere in order to be able to enact that for the next generation of mutants right that he, that he mentors and I, and I think, you know, as well, that's one of the excellent parts of his mentorship is his vulnerability, right? Yeah. So, again, he's not an authority. <laughs> one of the things I think that attracts these younger mutants to him is that he is he is vulnerable. He doesn't hide when he's hurt or there's that in Astonishing X-Men. There's that really funny uh, panel where Armor comes in and, and says, you know, are, are you okay? Or, and he says something like, are you a beer? Yeah, <laughs> Which I, is, I think she says, can I help? Yeah, right, can she I help? She says, are you a beer? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to read that, but I feel like there is a way in which to read that as him being very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That he's not, he's not always just, you know, the hero. There's a lot, there's other complexities here that, that we see him open himself to other people. Like he doesn't hide it. So that is attractive, right? And again, like I, I contrast that with like someone like Cyclops, in which all we see, you know, or what he projects is that sort of authoritar- authoritative voice. Well, and who's very much built a character that's about being about the illusion, or at least yeah, the persistent persistent enough lie that people don't challenge it of invulnerability. Right, absolutely, right. And I've had, and then Wolverine gets challenged all the time. Like people call him on his stuff yeah. all the time. So that that you know. And they're comfortable doing that, despite, like, you know, he's supposed to be so dangerous and <laughs> what I do is not very nice. But, like, people are attracted, like, people are attracted to him, you know, despite himself. And I think that, mm-hmm. that makes him, you know, that's one of the ways in which I think he's a really good mentor. Like, you see that he messes up, too, and it's okay. And, and that's, you know, and he gets through it. And that's a that's a guardrail to follow. So I, I think, you know, I think that's what makes him, again, an interesting creator of kinship structures. So this this segue is kind of elegantly into the final section of of the book, um, which we sort of teased earlier in the conversation, which is about fan interpretations of his relationship with Nightcrawler. Yes, very and very sexy ones. Yes. So I, I really looked at um, I really looked at, <laughs> I really read a lot of porn, basically, <laughs> in this in this uh, in that in that chapter, and that was a lot of a lot of fun and really fascinating to see how often their relationship becomes an S&M relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the, I was really interested in how fans took Wolverine, uh, especially in terms of reading him as sort of hyper-masculine and made him into the submissive. Uh, example after example after example. And so that, that was sort of, I was looking for, when I was reading these stories, I really cultivated stories that really exploited that. And, and those are really fun stories and really, 
I was like, oh, so we're going to go there. Uh, and so that, that was, I feel like S&M sort of opened the character to another, uh, another way to look at, at, at him. Like another way to look at his vulnerability, um, was, was thinking about him in terms of S&M scenarios. So aside from the absolutely irresistible opportunity to use the word tail fucking in an academic tail text, fucking, that's right. What le- led you to Nightcrawler specifically? So I was really, uh, I was really interested. I'm really fascinated by their friendship. Right? So they've got this very long documented friendship. Um, it's it's really deep. And when I did, I wasn't fully sure where that chapter was going to go. So when I did a search, I found all kinds of different sites that dealt with their relationship. Uh, so, you know, if you go to archive of our own, there are tons and tons of X-Men, you know, fan fiction. And I think there might even be more like Cyclops, actually fan fiction. Uh, I, I forget the numbers, but Nightcrawler is a, a pretty close second. This is in terms of characters paired with Wolverine. Yeah. Characters paired with Wolverine. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, so there, it's all over the place. There's, there's, Wolverine Colossus fan fiction. There's Wolverine, you know, of course, Wolverine Jean Grey fan fiction. He's paired up with everybody. But the, what I found was that the, there was a passion <laughs> to the Nightcrawler stuff. And there's also like, so not only is there all kinds of stuff on AO3, but like there's a, its own website. There's a Logurt website, which is Logurt, Logan and, and Kurt. So, you know, the, Sorry, their, their ship. Their ship is low. There are ship names that are that are. There are ship names that are sort of succinct and perfect and make sense to me. And there are ship names that are just like, okay, I I get that that's the portmanteau, but yes, wow, yeah, that one's that one's um, that's yeah. I, my favorite my favorite ship name ever is is I'm going to tangent very very briefly is is the uh, Daredevil Jessica Jones one, which is mess. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> that actually is perfect. All right, so going back, <laughs> yeah, there's a, so there's a little, there is just devoted to Kurt and uh, and Logan stories. The there's a Logurt, I think it's like Logurt.net, uh, and, and there's a bunch of stuff on Tumblr. But I, you know, I, Ao3 is like the big the big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, Ao3 has the really organized tagging system, right. which and, and, and makes it which super is, is, is just yes. research catnip. Yes, absolutely, and, and, and super helpful because you can just put in you know, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, BDSM, and all, you know, it, it focuses for you. So anyway, friendship has always been something I've been particularly interested in. And I, I think that they feed off of each other in, in all kinds of fascinating ways. The way that they look at the world, just the ways in which they one can pass and one cannot uh, in terms of being a mutant, the sort of dashing romance of, of Nightcrawler and the sort of, you know, beefy <laughs> slab of Slab, slab of meat that is Wolverine, like so. There's all the kind of cowboyness. Yeah, the cowboyness, right? So there's all kinds of really interesting configurations. So I was really interested in this, in seeing, like, okay, so the first two chapters of this of the book really dealt with sort of sub, you know, with subtext, and I, I discuss a little bit about queer baiting and, mm-hmm. and comics and fan fiction. Sort of rescues that, I think. It really unpacks it. It says, okay, look, we all see this queer reading. Let's really explore what that means. And so it goes off in all kinds of different directions. And, you know, like one story I talk about is very like hospital bed romance, which is a really awesome, awesome little story. And one story has to do with, you know, truck stop sex and with a voyeur. And so it's like the fetishization of mutant sex, which, you know, is interesting. But again, like that's the tail fucking 
start of, of, of that discussion. I, I, so it's like, <laughs> I have to talk a lot about Kurt's use of his tail in all kinds of different ways. Um, and so that gets really creative too, because, you know, to go back to what we were talking about a little earlier in terms of bodies, you know, how do you theorize a tail being a, a, a sexual organ, right? And so fan fiction authors do that. It's a really cool way to unpack what's going on with mutant bodies. They can do all kinds of different things. And, and a lot of times Kurt uses that as, as sort of a, an insertive sexual organ, you know, with Wolverine. Uh, and Wolverine really likes it. <laughs> so there's a, there's all kinds of really fascinating um, ways in which, you know, fan fiction authors take Wolverine and talk and, and really unpack the vulnerability part of him as a submissive in a, a dominant uh, submissive situation. And specifically in a consensual context, which is yes. something that really distinguishes that representation from what you were describing in the comics. Yeah, really. And it's, it's fascinating to read, to read these, these fan fiction stories too, because it feels like a manual sometimes. Like it starts with, you know, can all the consent and what we're going to do. And is this okay? And there's, uh, there's a one story that I talk about in which Kurt decides that he's going to play the, you know, play the dominant, but he doesn't tell. Well, he doesn't tell Wolverine. And so he bites him on the nipple really hard. And Wolverine's like, what the fuck? And so and he pushes him off. And then they have to discuss the consent parts of it. And then Wolverine is like, yes, okay, I'm totally into this. I'll be the submissive and we'll do all this stuff. So even that's really interesting. Like, look, it's like, look, if you are going to, if you're going to practice BDSM, make sure that both parties consent to all the different rules. And like, it's, and they've just taken that and put that into this comic book world. And it's, it's fascinating. There's a whole side discussion and, and I think side dissertation or two <laughs> on the specific representations of kink in fan fiction and ways in which it is and isn't moralized in, in meta discussions of fan fiction that I, I feel like that has to, that connects to, to some extent as well. Yeah. There, this, it's just, it is, it is what they're practicing, right? I mean, they're, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. There's no moralizing about it. It's, it's this is good healthy fun sex um and this is what we're you know this is how we're going to practice it yes absolutely so queering wolverine is is a fairly short book you've got yeah these three main sections i'm really curious about what didn't end up in there i really would have liked to have talked a little bit more or a lot more about jubilee the relationship is is probably actually his longest mentorship relationship and i'm thinking i mean that, that goes on for years it's definitely the one with the most bleed into his own book. Right. So I I think part of it was, you know, the publisher says this is how many pages and words it right. has to be. So I felt like that was almost too much to take on for this book. So that's that's not in there. I would have liked to have done a lot more with his children, his parenting, um, because I feel like there's some interesting queer parenting stuff that could have been uh, done with him because he's his relationship with his kids is not the sort of quote unquote normal relationship. And even the way he discovers that he even has kids is later in life and they're adults. And, and, it, and it's like how to even connect with them uh, in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, with the son, that's, that's not a very good relationship at all. So, and then with Laura Kinney, they've got a stronger bond. And I mentioned in the conclusion, you know, that 
there's a one shot that generations where she goes back in time. And one of the uh, fascinating things about that comic is the way it queers time. Like she's going back into his past. Uh, it's, it's situated in, in the Claremont run to sort of advise him that he needs to be more of a present father. And she's, and, and then he sort of recognizes that she has eyes like his mother and recognizes that this might be a future daughter of his. And she doesn't tell him that he's dead because <laughs> it happens after the death of it. So there's really a, a real fascinating stuff going on there. Um, and they, and they hug and she's, she gets kind of emotional and, that one shot does a really a lot of interesting stuff with time and parenting, and you know the sort of and again this to go back to that the queer the kinship stuff that we were talking about earlier. Here's another situation in which it's kind of it feeds off of each other. You know, the mentee ends up helping the mentor, right? It's so that that's another way in which he queers those kinship structures because it's not top down. It's why am I blanking on this word? I want re something reciprocal. Yes, it's reciprocal. Thank you. It's reciprocal, right? It's reciprocated. Which, again, like, we don't think about mentoring or parenting to be that, that kind of reciprocal relationship. Instead, it's, you know, again, like, it's it's hierarchical. And that's the fantastic thing about Wolverine, too. Like, I feel like he's sort of non-hierarchical and sort of resists hierarchies in all kinds of different ways. Uh, so I would, I would have liked to expound a little bit more about his... Uh, fathering and think about that and, and the, with a lens of like queer parenting. You brought up Laura and that's actually something I'm, I'm surprised didn't come up more in this book because one of the things that the specifically is, is if not necessarily central, corroborative to a lot of trans readings of, of Wolverine, but, but also very much, I think an element of, of textual queering of him is, is that he's got a female clone. Yes. And, clone or dot right do- now it's now it's retconned into daughter <laughs> like there's yeah. a you know <laughs> the right set i mean that was what makes her interesting too right and then we've got a new like now we've got two of them we've got talon now too from the future as I, there's laura kinney's like honestly i think laura kinney is probably a book in herself yeah there's so much going on with her the different runs of of, of her book really they really kind of open up the concept of Wolverine even further. Yeah. Because she's not, she's not, she's got some of his qualities, but she's definitely her own person. Uh, so yeah, I did not have space to give her a treatment that would have been worthy of, of all the stuff that she um, represents. Well, if you go there, you also get into superhero identities as phenomenological objects and it's, it just gets messy from there. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, the concept of legacy characters and mm-hmm. you know even wolverine saying like when she there's that great panel where she says i'm wolverine and and he says yeah you are <laughs> you tell him kid or something like that right like he is very much invested in her being you know a wolverine as well right mm. so yeah she's not in the book as much as i'd like her to be but i think um she's truly just she's worth her own book So we put out a call for questions, and most of them I think we covered in the course of the conversation, but there are a couple remaining. Dr. Kizar de la Muerte asks on Tumblr, what would Logan's favorite tabletop RPG be to explore his somewhat repressed queer feelings in? (laughs) 
Oh, that's a good question. I, I got to say, so I have trouble with this question because my sense of Wolverine is someone who would find tabletop RPGs intensely frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and, and I got to say that I'm not sure that I'm versed enough in tabletop, enough tabletop RPGs to give a good answer to that. So eh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm for this for the sake of having an answer. I'm going to say dream askew, but with the, the the strong qualification that I I I do not feel that it is it is I I I just I just don't see Wolverine sitting through a whole session. <laughs> no, he needs to be patient. <laughs> well, and too frustrated at the ways that it didn't line up with how things actually happen. So it did definitely like dream askew is is a diceless storytelling system. Okay, which is is part of why I think it would it would probably come off it would probably work a little better for him than the, you know, what do you mean I rolled a one? This is something I can do. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, that, that you know, I, this is totally tangential too. Like, you know, the other thing that I really, and, and it's hard, it, this isn't necessarily a queer reading of, of Wolverine, but just a character reading. Like I'm really interested in, especially in like his solo title, like Wolverine's a reader. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of scenes of him, and, and, and I'm thinking about the intellectualism of, of tabletop games, right? And I'm, so I'm thinking mm-hmm. about Wolverine's just, there's that tendency to think of him as this sort of like, you know, face first into the fight kind of thing. But like, I've, I was always struck by these scenes in which, and it happens a number of different times. Like he has a very sparsely decorated apartment, but he's got a, like a bunch of books. Mm-hmm. And like, like, he's not a TV guy. He's not like, he's not a, he's, oh. he's not Have a, you read Wolverine Killing? Uh, maybe. Which one is that? So it's 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 a one shot. Um, it's by by John Nay Reber and drawn by Kent Williams. Okay. Um, in my opinion, it is it is the definitive Wolverine as a queer as queer cowboy poet. Oh, okay. Text. Nice. Okay. Oh, I, missed, um, I, I think I've missed that one. I will have to add that to my list. It's great. I mean, it's it's Kent Williams, of course. It's great. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. I, I love it. The way he trusts Wolverine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the intellectualism of, of Wolverine, I feel like, is a is a topic too. Like. Yeah. Okay. He likes he likes big books. <laughs> that's that's kind of awesome. Yeah? Well, I, I feel like that that lines up with sort of Wolverine as the sensitive cowboy because yeah, that yeah. is part sure, of that archetype. Sure, sure. Is is like the 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 surprisingly well read. Yes, Surpri- I like that surprisingly well read. But he's probably forgotten it. <laughs> I I love like like one of the things that I always come back to is so all of the X Men nominally teach at the school at any given time, mm-hmm, right? And the question of what would Wolverine teach realistically because you get you know jokey answers and there's right. always the you know, he teaches the survival class and right. whatever but i keep on going back to the fact that i feel like i i feel strongly and instinctually that he would be a humanities guy oh yeah i think he is i think in wolverine and the x-men mm-hmm. there's a scene in which he's in the classroom and i swear it's literature on the board and, and i have to go i will have to go back and look because you know i i talk about that uh, that series and the, mm-hmm. the ways in which he's drawn a little bit in the book I feel like on the chalkboard it says literature. Like he, like he truly is a humanities guy, yes. which is awesome. <laughs> you know, because all superheroes are science nerds, so it's nice, nice. to see. You know, it's like science. Okay, we we get it. You're all tech science nerds. Da da da. But like, how about the where's the literature guy? Where's the literature people? Where's yeah. the where's the historians? It's right? Like him and Pyro. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Who, I don't even know that Pyro is a, a literature guy. I just know he writes romance novels. Sure, absolutely. So, and final question comes from 
Fluffy Llamacorn, and Fluffy Llamacorn would like to know if you have any recommendations, methods, theories, or sources to look into for someone about to write her master's thesis on a queer, specifically aromantic reading of several texts, including some manga. Oh, nice. So I think Ramsey Fawaz's stuff is it was very influential on me writing this book, and, it, and I'll recommend The New Mutants is great. Yes, yeah, I'll second that. But his new book, in terms of the question, thinking about different genres... It's called Queer Forms and looks at the 70s and 80s and tackles a lot of different genres. Talks about um, Stepford Wives, talks about Tales of the City. But in terms of uh, the intersection of feminism and queer theory in the 70s and 80s and the forms of, of queerness, how queerness was represented, that's a really uh, great text that I was really, I, I wrote it, like academic books you don't tend to read cover to cover. <laughs> I read this mm-hmm. one cover to cover. I was, yeah, that's a strong uh, endorsement. Yeah, I was I was really uh, inspired by that. So uh, I, I think Ramsey Fawaz's work, uh, Margaret Galvin's work as well. She writes a lot about AIDS anthologies. Um, she's written a bunch of stuff about superheroes. So that's really great. There's a um, edited collection called the LGBTQ uh, Comic Studies Reader that has a few essays in there about manga. That's a really great text that just came out and I think it's won a few awards. That's a really great resource as well. And there's a ton of different essays in there with a lot of different bibliographies too that that are pretty rich to explore. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So finally, um, for folks interested in continuing to follow your work, uh, where can you be found? So right now I'm, I'm on, uh, I'm on blue sky (laughs) Uh, because Twitter is sort of circling the drain. Uh, I I have, I still have a Twitter account and everywhere I go, I'm, I'm professor Wolby. So it's, uh, kind of easy to find me if you if you type those in but um i tend to post whatever i'm working on uh, there in fact, right now i'm writing about iron man uh, which is not a place i would have thought uh, <laughs> i would find myself but Ooh. but i'm 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 writing about uh iron man 2020 and thinking about artificial intelligence and the ethics of what the human o uh owes um artificial intelligence because the premise of of uh, Iron Man 2020 is that Tony Stark doesn't think he's Tony Stark. He thinks he's an artificial intelligence downloaded into a body. And so therefore he doesn't have any rights. So he gives up Stark Industries. So it, the whole comic is really an interesting allegory about what does the human owe to artificial intelligence? Is artificial intelligence its own thing uh, in terms of uh, a being or a self? Uh, so anyway, I'm exploring those kinds of ethical ideas there. So I'm, I'm working on revisions of that right now. But yeah. That's where I, I, I Twitter or Blue Sky is, is probably my, my social media presence is always there. We'll link to those in the, the, the copy to this episode, which you can find at explainthexmen.com. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our guest and guest co-host this episode, Christopher Michael Roman. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any other given podcatcher, and at explainthexmen.com. And you can check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, with occasional exceptions like this one. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay entirely ad-free and answerable only to our listeners, you can check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, and please, whether or not you do that, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platforms. It really helps. Next episode, Miles will be back in the virtual studio, and we'll be taking a look at two stray Excalibur tie-ins, as Colossus and Megan finally make it to Dudley World... 
and Nightcrawler goes to hell. Again.